theyeshiva.net. I want to thank very much the sponsor of today's class, which was dedicated by Grandpa and Grandma Molchan in honor of Irene's first birthday. Irene Bat Anna, dedicated by the grandparents, the loving grandparents. So thank you very, very much. Today, we're going to learn what seems like a very technical statement in Gemara pertaining to a specific Jewish law. And yet we will demonstrate how this has very powerful relevance to our own daily lives, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, and practically. At the surface, it's going to seem like a very technical law that is relevant to one particular scenario in halacha and Jewish law. But the fact is, every single line in Gemara, every law, every mitzvah, every story, every statement, every observation, contains within it profound wisdom, divine wisdom, and relevance to life. And today will serve as a beautiful, I think, a meaningful example for that. A little introduction to be able to have perspective. Everybody knows the fourth one of the five commandments, the fourth commandment of the Aseris Adibris is Zachar Yisem HaShabbos Lakatsha. Remember the day of Shabbos to sanctify it. Sheish Yisem Tavid Vasisekal Malachtecha V'yoyim HaShvi Shabbos LaShem HaLekecha Loisasulcha Malacha Atto Vincho Vitecha Avdecha Amazchum Techa V'geircha Sheba Sherecha Ki Sheish Yisem Masa Hashem HaShemayim V'sarit Zizkal HaShemom V'yonach B'yoyim HaShvi Al-Kein Be'erich HaShem HaShem HaShabbos V'yikatshay We say it every Shabbos in the Kiddush Six days you should work, do all of your work. The seventh day is a day of rest, don't do any work. You and your children, your slaves, your animals. Why? Hashem created the world in six days, and the seventh day he rested. The question is, what is the definition of malacha? It says, don't do any work. What's the definition of work? Can I schlep a couch? from upstairs to downstairs, from one room to another room. Is that work? That's work. It's harder to schlep a couch through the house than it is to switch on a light or ignite a fire on my stove. Nonetheless, our sages explained that the definition of malacha that's forbidden on Shabbos is creative work. Because the whole idea of Shabbos is to commemorate the six days of creation followed by a day of rest. The six days of creation, Hashem didn't work in the classical sense of work. He had a job. It's creative work. He created. So the types of labor that are forbidden on Shabbos are constructive forms of labor that create something. Even something tiny and small, but they make a difference. So for example, the first labor that's forbidden on Shabbos, the Mishnah says, is planting or plowing or harvesting. These these are transformative labors. Because when I plow the earth... I turn it into fertile ground that can, blo- that can blossom, that can produce vegetation. When I plant a seed into the earth, something transformative was created. The seed is now going to be able to cause vegetation and produce. The same is true when I harvest. As long as it's connected, I can't eat it, I can't bring it home. When I harvest it, I actually transform the very quality of the fruit. It's not alive anymore, connected to the roots of the tree. Now it's disconnected. The same is true when I bake or when I cook. 
I actually create a transformation. I take raw dough that's not edible, and now I put it in the oven and it bakes. Now it becomes edible. It becomes challah. It's now a food that I can actually eat. The same is true if I ignite a fire. I actually transformed a substance. I created a new reality, a fire. And the same is true all over the other malachis of Shabbos, all over the other 39 prohibited labors on Shabbos that are recorded in Tractate Shabbos in the seventh chapter of Mishnayis of Shabbos are all creative work. Chazal say also, our sages teach us, that from the juxtaposition in Chumash, between the prohibition, between the prohibition to work on Shabbos and the commandment to build the Mishkan, the sanctuary, we also learn that all of the labors that were done in order to build the tabernacle, the sanctuary, those are the types of labors that are forbidden to do on Shabbos. Because Moshe Rabbeinu tells the Jewish people, I don't want you to work on Shabbos, don't ignite a fire on Shabbos, don't do work on Shabbos. And then he tells them to build a sanctuary. We learn from that juxtaposition, something explained at length in Gemara and Shabbos, that what type of labors are forbidden on Shabbos? Those things that we do in the Mishkan. Those types of labors... Those types of work, that types of work that were done in, in the in the process of constructing the Mishkan, the sanctuary. This is introduction number one. Introduction number two. The only type of labor that's biblically forbidden on Shabbos is constructive labor. Meaning if I'm doing something that's going to bring benefit, use, it's going to create something that's beneficial, that's meaningful. However, our sages say in Mishnah Shabbos chapter 13, somebody who does something that's detrimental is exempt. Biblically, there's no, it's not considered a Shabbos labor because there's nothing constructive coming out of it. So for example, if I decide that I want to destroy my house, demolition is one of the labors of Shabbos, but only if the demolition is for the sake of renovation. It's called soiser al-menas livnois. If I demolish my house, I start removing the bricks because I want to renovate the house. I want to expand the walls. I want to, I want to, I want to redo my kitchen. I want to redo my dining room. I need another bedroom. So now the demolition is not just demolition for the sake of destruction. It's very constructive by taking away, by removing the bricks or the wood. I am beginning the process of rebuilding, renovating the home. That's called soiser amanas livnas. Then it's a labor that's forbidden on Shabbos. But if you're just dem- demolishing for the sake of demolishing, you're just destroying it. There's nothing, no benefit from this. Then, biblically, it's not forbidden on Shabbos. The rabbi still said you shouldn't do it, but biblically, there's no prohibition of Shabbos. Because the only malacha that's permiss, that, pro- that prohibited is malachas machshevis. It has to be with the intention of, of something, cons- a constructive purpose. The same is true if I tear. If I tear off, if I undo threads, I tear them off because I want to sew the garment again, then it's toifer almanas, it's kairei almanas litfer. I'm tearing in order to sew it back together, then it's a malacha. But if it's just to tear without any constructive purpose, there's no benefit for it, then you're exempt biblically. Because kolam akalkal in pturin. Whenever you do it for just for detriment purpose, detrimental purposes, you're exempt. Here's now an interesting question. The Gemara says, Rabbi Yossi says, in Meseches Shabbos Lamed Aleph, Tractate Shabbos 31, that the only way you are liable for demolishing in order to build, to renovate, is if you're going to renovate in the same space. But if you're removing the bricks 
and you're going to reuse these bricks to build a home in another city or in another street or in another neighborhood, it's not a labor that's biblically forbidden on Shabbos. It has to be I have to be able to rebuild it in this very space. Why? Because then the demolishing is really the beginning of renovation. When you're breaking down the wall of your house on Shabbos, you're actually beginning the renovation because right here, you're going to expand the home and redo the new home. But if you're demolishing the home here and then you're going to schlep the bricks to another city and you're going to rebuild there, so even though the demolition had the objective of renovation, you're not liable biblically for doing any labor on Shabbos because right here it's demolition, there's no renovation. This is the context, this is the introduction. I hope it was clear. Let's now go inside to the text and learn it inside. This is Gemara Shabbos, Lamed Aleph, Lamed Beis. Open up your source sheets. If you want to open up a Gemara, you can open up a Gemara, or you can go to theyeshiva.net, T-H-E-Y-E-S-H-I-V-A, theyeshiva.net, and look at this video this woman's class of Tuesday, and you will see the source sheet so you could follow inside. Again, it's above the video, view source sheets, or below the video, download source sheets. I'm going to read. Shabbos Lamed Aleph Amid Beis. Kosover Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Yossi holds, Soyser Almanas Livnas Bimkaymai, have a Soyser Almanas Livnas. If you demolish a home with the intention of renovating it in the very same space, that's called demolishing for the sake of rebuilding. And then you're liable. Then you did something forbidden biblically on Shabbos. But if you're demolishing a home or a tent or a building, and you want to rebuild it elsewhere, not in this very space, even though you're going to use the materials from this building, this is not called a melacha of demolishing on Shabbos, and biblically you're exonerated. You're not liable. Amalei Rabbah. Rabbah responds and says, I have a great question. Michte. Let's see. All of the labors that are forbidden on Shabbos, we learn out from the Mishkan. Whatever the Jews did when they were building, putting together the Mishkan, that is considered a malacha, a labor that's forbidden on Shabbos. So now let's think about this. Where was there a labor of building by the Mishkan? The answer is they built the Mishkan. What about demolishing? They took apart the Mishkan. When they took apart the Mishkan, were they planning to put it up in the same place or somewhere else? And the answer is, when they took apart the Mishkan, it's because they were traveling. So they would carry the Mishkan, they would carry the tabernacle, and then set it up elsewhere. If we learn out all of the labors of Shabbos from the Mishkan, then there's something off here. Because by the Mishkan, they didn't demolish it and put it up in the same place. They didn't take apart the Mishkan and then reassemble it right here. No. They took it and then the Levites carried it until they came to a new location and that's where they put up the Mishkan. If we are learning the labor of demolishing and building from the Mishkan, so then it should follow the replica of the Mishkan. And by the Mishkan, you never demolished it and put it up in the same place. You always took it apart, and you reassembled it in a new place. How can Rabbi Yossi say that if you demolish a building on Shabbos, 
And your objective is to put it back together, to rebuild it in another place. It's not the Malach of Saiser, it's not called demolishing, and it's not forbidden on Shabbos, when by the Mishkan, which is the source from where we learn all the labors, that was exactly how they took apart the Mishkan, with the objective, with the mindset, to reassemble the Mishkan and put it back together and re-erect it in another location. Great question. Amalei, so the Gemara answers, shiny, awesome. It's different. Since it says in Parshas Baloyzcha, Alpi Hashem Yachanu, the Pasuk says in Parshas Baloyzcha three times, Alpi Hashem Yisu, Alpi Hashem Yachanu, all of the travels and all of the dwellings were guided by Hashem, so therefore, it's like you demolish it with the objective of putting it back in the same place. What is the Gemara saying? The Jews in the desert were traveling for a long time, 40 years they wandered in the wilderness. But they were guided by the cloud, by the divine GPS, GPS, God's positioning system, God's special ways that he invented. And this showed the Jews exactly where to go, how far to go, when to stop, and when to re-embark on a new journey. It was Alpi Hashem Yisr, it was based on God's directive. Did they leave one location and begin traveling to a new location? And then it was based on God's directive, Yachinu, that they dwelled in the new location for as long as he wanted. And then once again, they relocated to a new place. And this is what happened, was was going on for four decades. As the Torah describes in Parshas Baloyz. So the Gemara says, so therefore, when they took apart the Mishkan to put it back together in another place, it's as though they're demolishing to rebuild it in the same space. But why? What's the logic? Because God is the one who told them when to travel, when to go, when not to go, and where to go, and how long to travel, and when to stop in a new place. So therefore, it's as though they took apart the Mishkan to rebuild it in the same place. Why? So they their travels were based on God, not based on their own initiative or based on their own strategic plannings or expertise in the Sinai Desert. So Zion, why is it called one place? Very difficult to understand what the answer is. The question I got, what's the answer? Rabbeinu Hananel writes that the answer is that since God was guiding them, they didn't know where he's going to take them. So maybe they would just leave this place and come right back. <laughs> So if they were here, maybe Hashem would say, okay, you know, travel a mile <laughs> and then just come right back, like in a circle. We'll just, we'll go, we'll go back in a circle or go back in a straight line. In other words, they don't know where the new location is going to be because they're not the ones planning it. God is. And He's not sharing it with them. He'll do what He wants. So maybe they are going back to the same place. So when they're taking apart the Mishkan, they're not sure. Maybe they're going to put it back together in the same place where they took it apart because maybe God's positioning system is going to take him back to the first destination. Certainly an interesting uh, way of understanding the Gemara, but it's difficult to understand. Because they were journeying, they had a destination, they were going to Eretz Yisrael. It's just, they went the long way. But we don't find any situation where they were in a place, and then they went right back to the same place. They were journeying. So they probably understood that they're going to be going to a new place. They're not going back to the same place. Even if there's a doubt that maybe they're going to go back to a new, the same place. But certainly, it was very likely that they're not going to go back to the same place. 
and therefore they're taking apart the Mishkan, not to put it back in the same place, maybe, but probably not, or certainly maybe not. So how can you say that from the Mishkan we learn, that whenever you demolish something, and you're going to do it in another place, it's not called the Malachah, when by the Mishkan that was certainly part of the equation. It's Asura Suffolk. There were two great giants in the last generation who addressed this question. And they both gave a very similar answer. And it's their answer I want to share with you today. The first was the Shemishmur, of Shmuel Sachachavir. The Shemishmur is a work on Chumash that was authored by a man named Rabbi Shmuel Bornstein, Rabbi Shmuel Bernstein. He was the rabbi of a city in Poland called Sochachov. He was one of the Hasidic masters in Poland in Sochachov, Sochachov Rebbe. He was a son of the famous Avne Nezer, Rabbi Avram Bornstein, Rabbi Avram Bornstein, who was also the rabbi and rabbi of Sochachov, and was a son-in-law of the Kotzke Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Morgenstern. Shemesh Shmuel passed away in 1926, Tafresh Pei This is the Hasidic world. In the Lithuanian world, there was a very famous Rosh Hashiva known as Reb Chaim Shmulevich. Reb Chaim Shmulevich was the famous Rosh Hashiva of the Miri Yeshiva. He was in the Mir in Europe. He was saved through Shanghai and ultimately came to Eretz Yisrael and helped reestablish the Miri Yeshiva in Jerusalem, which is one of the largest, if not the largest yeshiva in the world. He passed away in 1978. They both give a very similar insight to explain this. And Reb Chaim gave a very famous metaphor. And it's this metaphor I want to share with you in order to understand what the Gemara means. A fantastic metaphor. The metaphor is Reb Chaim Shmulevich's metaphor. I'm just going to elaborate a bit on it to make it clear. To make it clearer for all of our listeners. He says, imagine, it's a hot day in Israel. Some of you visited Israel in July and August. Some of you are tuning in from Israel. But you know, Israel can get very, the Middle East can get very, very hot. And it's one of those really hot summer days in the Holy Land. And there's a woman who needs to take a bus. She has to travel from the south all the way up north. So she gets on a bus and of course she walks to the bus. There's no air condition on the bus. There's no air condition in her, uh, <laughs> in her pocket to cool her off. She's hot. She's sweating. It's boiling. It's, you know, those days when the scorching sun right over your head really gives you a taste of intense heat and light, and she gets on the bus, the bus is packed, there's nowhere to sit. People are tense, people are anxious, the driver is not in the best mood, he's also boiling hot, and there's no AC on the bus. She gets on the bus in Beersheva and travels from Beersheva to Ashkelon. Then she has to take a new bus to get from Ashkelon to Jerusalem, Yerushalayim. And then from Jerusalem to Achanamer Kazit, the central bus station, she schleps and takes a bus to Tel Aviv. And from Tel Aviv to Herzliya, and from Herzliya to Petach Tikva, and from Petach Tikva to Netanya, and from Netanya to Chadera, and from Chadera to Haifa, and from Haifa to Tzvas. Are you exhausted yet, anybody? All by bus, from bus to bus, in the scorching heat, sometimes there's where to sit, sometimes there's where not to sit. There's lines, and there's bus stops, and some of the buses are late, and finally she's in Svat, she has one more stop, Kiryat Shmona, all the way up north. 
She makes it to Keir Shmona, does what she has to do, and now she has to get back home. So from Keir Shmona, she got to travel back to Be'er Sheva. By the time this day is over, or these two days are over, you can only imagine how difficult life has been for her. Simply the schlepping, and the schlepping, and the schlepping, and the sweat, and the dryness, and the humidity. You know, humidity can kill some uh, some people. And the heat, the schwitzt. And going from one place to another place, every place has its issues and its unique, its unique uh, qualities and characteristics and so forth. It was a hard day. It was a hard day. To put it mildly. But there's one detail I didn't say. She also had a baby with her. She had a little, Tinok Pa'ut, a little baby toddler in her arms with her on this journey. If you would be able to have a conversation with this baby and ask this baby, wow, you must have had a difficult day today. After all, you went from Beersheva to Ashkelon to Jerusalem to Lviv, to Leopold, and all the way back. How many places you have been in? Was it exciting? Was it crazily stressful? How are you doing? And the baby would look at you and say, my dear friend, I was in one space today. What do you mean? You traveled throughout the length of Israel, down south, all the way up north, then back. You were in many places today. My experience, I was in one space. I was in my mother's arms. From the mother's perspective, she indeed was schlepping from city to city, from bus stop to bus stop, from location to location. From the child's perspective, he wasn't schlepping anywhere. (laughs) He was in the same space. He was in his mother's arms in Beersheva, in Ashkelon, Jerusalem, in Tel Aviv, in Herzliya, in Svat, in Kedshman. He was in the same arms of his mother, cuddled up in her sweet and powerful and warm, loving embrace. Ah, now we'll understand what the Gemara says. The Jews traveled the desert. They traversed it for 40 years. They went from location to location to location to location. One location in the desert to another location. 42 locations as discussed in Parshas Masseh. All the 42, the list of the 42 locations, Vayisu, from here, Vayachanu, from here. They left here, they came here, they left here, they left there. We go through the whole list in Parshas Mas. Geographically, they went from one space to another place, space. But emotionally, they experienced it all as being always in one space, carried in the arms of the Rebbein Neshulah. Go back to the words of the Gemara. Since the Torah says that every journey and every dwelling was based on the directive of Hashem, so when they took apart the Mishkan, because they were about to journey, and their mindset was to rebuild, reassemble the Mishkan in the next location, in their mind, they weren't going to do it in a new space. It's Bimkaimai. 
in their experience, in their imagination, they're going to rebuild the Mishkan in the very same space. Why? They're not going to be in the very same space. Geographically, they're not going to be in the same space. But emotionally, they felt themselves in one space, carried in the arms of their divine mother and father, loving them unconditionally. And in fact, these words are said by Moshe Rabbeinu himself in Devarim at the end of his life, the last weeks of his life, he records and he gives an account of the last four decades and he tells them in Devarim, Perik Aleph, Lamad Aleph, Deuteronomy, chapter 1, verse 31, you have it on your source sheets. Again, you could go to theyeshiva.net and you have the source sheets to this class. In the desert you have seen that God has carried you like a father carries a child throughout the entire journey that you have went on until you came to this very place. In fact, Moshe Rabbeinu in Parshas Baha says to God, he says, have I impregnated and given birth to this entire Jewish nation that you're telling me? Carry the Jewish people in your bosom like a young nursing mother carries her suckling. Is that what you want? And indeed... God says in Hosea, Isaiah, Perikid Aleph, Anoichi tirgalti lefrayim kochem al zoroisov v'layodu kirufosim. I have made sure to give my children Ephraim, a leader who would carry them on his arms. They don't know that a healing came from me. So halachically, the Gemara says, when they were taking apart the Mishkan, it wasn't with the intention to put it up somewhere else. It's to put it up in the same place. Because their experience is that they're always in the same place. They're in the same location. In the Rebbein Nishaloylam's arms. Kashe Yisa Oman Asayoynik. Kashe Yisa Oves Bnoi. Koche I'm in the same space. Maybe not geographically, but mentally, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually. They were in the same space. Technically, we may be moving from here to there, but that didn't matter. We were embraced by God, cuddled by Him, felt hugged and anchored in that divine space. So halachically, if I demolish a building on Shabbos to put it up elsewhere, that's not called a malacha on Shabbos. And if I want to bring an offering, the Kayan is going to say, you can't bring this offering to the base of Mikdash. You didn't violate Shabbos. It's Chulim Bazara. Go home. This is not just an abstract, transcendental, spiritual idea in Judaism. It's a very concrete idea. You wanted to demolish it, to put it up elsewhere? Sorry. You can't bring an offering. You didn't do anything wrong biblically. What do you mean? In the Mishkan, that's how they did it. No, they demolished it to put it up in the same place. What do you mean the same place? They traveled somewhere else. They didn't travel anywhere else. They traveled back in the same... They were traveling in the same space all the time because they were like children in the arms of God. You remember Dovid HaMelech's words in Tehillim? I am silent, trusting 
I feel like a gummel. A gummel is a young infant who's nursing in the bosom of its mother. That's how I feel. David Amalek says, this is how I experience life. And what he meant by that is what he says in Tehillim chapter 179. If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I go down to the abyss, you're there. Even if I acquire wings and I dwell at the end of the sea, there too your hand will guide me and your right arm will cuddle me. Sometimes I say there's so much darkness that envelops me. But even darkness doesn't eclipse your presence. Wow. Here we have the Jewish perspective on how to live life. We all know there are days, I don't know, some of us maybe have those days, when life is like a choo-choo train. You ever went on a, you remember last time you went on a choo-choo train? You go to one of these zoos or small amusement parks and you take your your two-year-old or your four-year-old or your six-year-old on a choo-choo train. And it goes very, very slow. And everybody has a lot, a lot of time. And you sit and you look at the rhinoceros and you look at the hippos and you look at the deer and the horses and the donkeys and the tigers and the bears, the lions, the hyenas, the elephants, and all of the extraordinary mammals that God has given us in this world. And the choo-choo train is relaxed. And sometimes life feels like that. Slow motion, patience, savlanut, pamelech. Sometimes you have days you feel like you're on a roller coaster. And I don't mean a roller coaster that goes like a children. I mean a roller coaster that you have in all of these great adventures parts <laughs> you have in Disney World and the Six Flags Great Adventures or those super duper loopers that take you upside down a few times. You go up and then you go down and the speed is quite intense. Sometimes life feels like that. And some days vacillate in between. And it's not necessarily because of a major crisis, Khalila, which can also happen, but just sometimes the burdens, the responsibilities. You look at your to-do list and I have to run from here to here and take care of this and then take care of that and take care of this child, take care of another child, take care of your husband, take care of yourself. The cleaning lady didn't show up and there's Shabbos and there's Yom Tif and there's something else that's happening and you have to travel it. I don't have to explain to people who uh, run busy lives. And it can get very overwhelming. And this is what the Gemara is teaching us. That the key to all of this is the stability and the serenity and the tranquility by knowing that I'm always in the same space. I'm carried, I'm cuddled in the loving arms of my divine mother and father, the Shekhinah. I am always anchored and centered in that space. Yes, my journey today may take me to many places geographically. 
I may have many texts to deal with and many emails to respond to, many WhatsApps to read or deal with, and many responsibilities and duties. I may have to run to this appointment and to that appointment, take care of this and take care of that. Geographically, my mind may be splintered into many different locations and responsibilities, but that's only the facts. Emotionally, I'm always in the same space. I don't lose it. I don't get flustered. I don't get overwhelmed. I'm not a fragmented person. Fragmentation is the key danger here. When I become a fragmented person, I don't know who I am anymore. And I'm just being bombarded, bombarded by one force and another force, by one pressure and another pressure, by one responsibility, another responsibility, and I'm trying to catch my breath, boom! And you could lose it. And even if you don't lose it, you keep it together. But there's so much stress. There's no serenity. There's no simcha. There's no menucha. Comes the Gemara and says, Kiva and Alpi Hashem Yisu, Alpi Hashem Yachinu, Kimikayim Ailu Dami. But when a Jew remembers that you're never alone, you are like that infant, that child. Kigamul Alei Mayez Davra Melech says, cuddled in the bosom of my mother who's always holding on to me and protecting me, and we are going on this journey together. Then I wake up in the morning and I say, thank you for returning my soul. We're going to have a great time together, wherever that journey takes us. Sometimes maybe it's going to look like a choo-choo train. Maybe some moments are going to look like a roller coaster. There may be some curveballs today that I don't expect. There may be some interesting encounters and situations. There must be maybe some conversations that will come up that are not going to be that easy to deal with. There may be some inner thoughts and emotions that are going to come up into my system and I'm going to have to deal with it. That's fine as long as you know. You're anchored in the embrace of the divine and you're always there. So technically that journey may take on many different shapes and forms, but emotionally, I'm always in the same space. I'm in the same space. I'm in God's arms. Or to put it differently, the Gemara says, A shliach, somebody who represents the person who sent him, or her, halachically, is like that person. I remember that I am a shliach of Hashem. I am an ambassador of infinity. I am an ambassador of love, light, hope, truth, authenticity, wisdom, healing, and redemption. So I represent the divine source, being carried by him, sustained, held on, cuddled by the Rebbeinah as his messenger. So every journey is part of my mission representing a reflection of Hashem in this world, bringing light into this place, and then into this place, and into this place, and into this place. When I have that perspective, when I anchor myself every morning in that truism, in this mantra of Alpi Hashem Yisu, Valpi Hashem Yachanu, says the Gemara, you're always in the same place. You never leave. I know you could be traveling to the airport, Long lines of security, long lines to get on the plane, then you're on the plane, then you get off the plane, then you have to go through customs, then you have to go to the luggage, then you have to find the car, and then you have to get to the place where you have to get, and then the journey begins. And it's tiring. But emotionally, I'm in the same space. 
I'm in the same space. Why? Because I'm anchored, I'm cuddled in God's arms. There's a Jew I know. His name is Rabbi Nissen Mangel. Rabbi Nissen Mangel, may he be well as the Rav of Ksav Seifer Shul in the Crown Heights section of Brooklyn. He shared with me once that he was 10 years old when he arrived in Auschwitz. He was 11 years old when Auschwitz was liberated. Probably the youngest or one of the youngest survivors of the Auschwitz-Birkenau death camp. He came face to face with Dr. Joseph Mengele, the angel of death, twice. Mengele considered doing experiments on him and twice he got himself out. Rebnissa Mangel, may he be well, very special Jew, his father was Rebeliezer Mangel. And his father was killed on the day of liberation. Imagine. He had his father with him. The day of liberation, his father was killed. And Rebnissen went on the death march. Death march from Poland to Germany. An 11-year-old boy, he tells me. I was sick. I was hungry. I was despondent. I was emaciated. I had no energy. I had my father, and my father was now dead. And you know that the Germans, if you stopped walking, you stepped out of line, you sat down to rest, they shot you immediately. That's why most people did not survive the death march. I was there. He said, I didn't have any koyach. I didn't have any energy to continue this march. For a week straight, they did not give you any food. All they can eat is the muddy snow on the ground. For a few moments, they let you eat it the muddy snow on the ground, for seven days, walking and walking and walking. And Ibn Nissen said to me, he said, at some point, I told myself, enough is enough, I can't bear this anymore, let me just step out of line, I'll get a bullet in my brain, and it'll all be over, the agony, and people did this all the time, they just simply couldn't. <laughs> the, the alternative was just excruciating torture, till they die anyway. And Ibn Nissan said, and at that moment I had a vision. I was sitting Friday night in my home before the war, before the Holocaust. And my father is sitting around the table and telling us stories. And there was a story that he would often tell us about the Balshamtiv. The Balshamtiv had a chassid, a disciple, who once came to visit him from another city. His wife, was pregnant, she would have to give birth, but they didn't think that it was time yet for birth, for the birth. He came to the Balshemtiv, and when he was at the Balshemtiv, he got a message. Somehow, somebody brought a message that his wife is going into labor and he must go home immediately. The problem is, it was nighttime. He thought he would wait till the next day. But the Balshamtiv said, no, go home now, go home now. He said, Rebbe, but to go home during the night, I'm going through a forest. And this forest was notorious. There can be gangsters there and, and thieves there and thugs there and I can lose all my money, lose my life. So he tells, he says, Rebbe, I'm afraid to I'm afraid to go alone in the forest. And the Balshamtiv said these words, Ayid gate came on nisht alain. 
A Jew never, ever walks alone anywhere. Hashem is always walking with him. Gay, you're not going alone. And the Jew went with a confidence, with a stamina, with a sense of security. And Ibn Nissen says, an 11-year-old boy on the death march left Auschwitz, This I had this flashback, this vision of my father sharing this story around the warm, cozy Shabbos table with the flames glowing, flames burning on the table. And it gave me such a dose of energy. Ayid gate came on the shtalein. I'm not walking on this death march alone. God is holding me. And I held on to this story. I held on to this statement of the Baal Shem Tov. I held on to this truth. I held on to Hashem. And here I am today. I heard this, I heard this story from him probably in the year 2007, 2008. So how many years after the Holocaust is that? Tasvav, Chavav, Lamed, Vav, Memvav, Memvav, Samal. Around 60 years later. 60, 70 years later. There was a Jew, a very special Jew, who passed away a few months ago. Rabbi Adin Steinsaltz, Rabbi Adin Evan Yisrael. He's one of the great scholars of our generation. Translated the Gemara into Hebrew and English, the Steinsaltz edition, and wrote probably 60, 70 books. When I was a yeshiva student... It was either in the late 80s, maybe early 90s. Rabbi Steinsaltz from Jerusalem came to a, for a visit to New York. So he came to see the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And he went by to get a dollar and a blessing from the Rebbe. So when he went by, they got into a conversation. And in the middle of the conversation, the Lubavitcher Rebbe asks him in Yiddish, he says, The Eishas Chavir is Eichikumen. Did your Rebetzin, Eishas Chavim means the wife of the Talmud Chacham, did your Rebetzin also come from Israel to here? So Rabbi Yadin tells the Rebbe, he smiles and he says, Nay, ich bin da alein. I am here alone. So the Rebbe picked up his hands and says, Alein? Then Eibishter is mitach. You're alone? Hashem is with you. I wondered... What was the point of this response? I mean, we all understand he was just using a very common expression. Did your wife come with you? You say, no, I'm here alone. (laughs) This was not a theological, philosophical, spiritual, religious statement and and, uh, state of the union address. Rebbe said, did your wife come with you? He said, no, I'm here alone. But perhaps there was a very, very profound message here. Rabbi Adin Steinsaltz was engaged in a lot of activities, was a very driven person, wanted to really change the Jewish world and change the world. The Rebbe knew that he had quite a few hurdles and obstacles and challenges that he met, that he would meet in different ways, and he wanted to empower him. There's no such a thing, you're alone. You're never, ever alone. Hashem came with you. He's with you. He's holding your hand. He's carrying you. You have to do what you have to do. You gotta be as creative as possible. This is not an excuse for victimhood. Oh, I'm just a little baby. I don't do anything. This is not an invitation for paralysis. On the contrary, it allows me to be as creative, as driven, as powerful as possible because I'm an ambassador of infinity. 
and no force in the world can overwhelm me and splinter me and fragment me and destroy me and split me into a million pieces because I'm anchored in the ultimate source of confidence, stability, in the indestructible love of my father and mother in heaven. We'll take some questions. Yeah, that's true. There's no question that our children are very sensitive to the vibes and they absorb it consciously or sometimes unconsciously. And sometimes the issues that we're dealing with, the trauma that we're dealing with is not our own. It's really trauma that has been given to us as a result of the experiences, the life stories, the conditions of parents, grandparents, maybe great-grandparents, maybe great-great-great-grandparents. And it's important to know this, that it's not about guilt and blaming yourself. It's really about what your mission is, what your journey is to be able to deal with it. And if it's given to me, it means I have the power to confront it and not allow it to define me, but I'm going to define it. This is the advantage of being cuddled by God as the source of infinite clarity and oneness so we don't have to uh, incorporate that stress. Beautifully said. Thank you. And you know what? Being held in my mother's arms doesn't mean I always understand what, where my mother is going and what my mother is doing. It doesn't mean that everything is clear. It doesn't mean that everything is rosy. I may be wondering, why are we going on this roller coaster? <laughs> why do we have to go up and down? You know, let's go on the choo-choo train. <laughs> it's much more attractive. Let's go on the simple rides instead of on the, you know, the scary roller coasters. I may not understand what my mother is doing, what my father is doing, where they're going, what's the objective of this journey. I can't always wrap my brain around it, but I can trust. Emunah, bitachin, means I trust. I trust that your love to me is infinite, that you certainly know the destination and the objective of the journey. And I'm going to hold on tight. Even if I can't wrap my brain around it all, even if I can't fully assimilate it into my understanding so that it makes sense, sometimes I could see the value. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I'm flabbergasted. Sometimes I'm startled. Sometimes I'm saturated with pain. And that's part of, that's part of the, and that's part of the journey. And even at that moment, I can trust that even that which I don't understand is ultimately not here to destroy me, but I can hold on to my beloved mother and father whose love to me is infinite. Like David HaMalach also says in Tehillim uh, 23, right? Psalm 23. Even as I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, I don't fear. I don't fear evil because you are with me. Nathan Sharansky speaks a lot about this chapter of Psalm. You know, he was, I think, nine years in the Gulag. And uh, till his liberation, I think around nine years. And a lot of the time he was in solitary confinement in the worst conditions of Soviet prison. But he had a book of Tehillim that they confiscated and he went on a hunger strike till they gave it back to him. And he taught himself Hebrew in the Soviet prisons. And he said these chapters of Psalms really held him together. It's amazing. It's an amazing story, Sharansky says. And really, what you see in Tehillim with David HaMelech is 
that he had a life that was very, very difficult, a lot of crises, a lot of great moments, but also a lot of crises that he had to deal with. But that's the key, that he was a warrior, he was ambitious, he was creative, he was brilliant, but he was also so vulnerable and so authentic. You know, he tells God, I'm just like a little toddler in your arms. And when you have that power, and I'm calling it power because it's powerful, when a powerful person becomes like a toddler in God's arms, that's really the key to David HaMelech's inner confidence and calmness that he has throughout Tehillim with all of the vicissitudes and struggles and fluctuations and the turbulence that he endures. But he had that that solid confidence that came from the fact that he was just anchored in a place that was indestructible. Question from Israel. What do we do in order to introduce this feeling into our heart? It should be authentic. It should be deep. I get what you're saying. But I only only understand it intellectually. I don't get it emotionally. How do we get this emotionally? You know, that's really, your question is so important because it's really the key. To be very frank, you know, we Jews are very good with cerebral mind games called the mental gymnastics. You know, we have all the ideas and all the great uh, secrets and all (laughs) the great remedies. But there's a difference between knowing it up here in a cerebral way and really experiencing it in a visceral way. That it's part of my heartbeat, it's part of my my energy flow, it's part of my rhythm, it's part of my body. And I think for this, we have to work on this. Some methods that can be very helpful is prayer. When you daven to really surrender and meditate on this truth and allow it to fill your brain, to fill your body. Mindfulness is helpful for this. Meditation is helpful for this. For some people, exercise is very helpful for this. To really get this, you know, to focus on your, to focus on your body energy and align it with the source. Breathing, breathing and anchoring yourself is also very helpful for this. There's also different therapeutic methods that you could read about that help people go into this place of alignment, especially if you're carrying a deep trauma in you and the body keeps the score in the famous title of the book. So sometimes the cerebral knowledge is really ineffective because my body is tense and I'm full of anxiety and pain and stress and pressure. You can feel it in your neck or in your back or in your torso or your stomach or your chest or my legs. But very often it's in the back or in the neck, on the head. And often it's not about, you know, just thoughts. Because my thoughts, my thoughts may be fine and my ideas may be fine. But I really have to be able to find right people who can help me get rid of a lot of that trauma, a lot of that stress. So it's a very personal and very deep journey. But generally speaking, in Yiddishkeit, I would say, prayer, davening, is very much about this. You know, that ability for a few minutes a day to close your eyes, to move away from your phone, to breathe, to meditate, to go into a place of silence and alignment, and really imagine yourself with this visual, give give yourself this visual that I am an, an innocent child cuddled, embraced 
in the arms of my divine mother, my divine father, with unconditional love, and that the journey of the day should be able to be done from that context. And if you train yourself to do this and to live this way and to react to life's challenges from this perspective, you will create new neural pathways in your brain which will make it easier to go there. The problem is that sometimes we have so many uh, habits that are ingrained in us that it's very hard for us to go there. We just go back to default mode of, of anger and blame, detachment, victimhood, self-loathing, frustration with the world, resentment. We go into that space. And that's a very, very narrow and petty space to be in. That's the space where I am completely a victim at the mercy of the curveballs that are being thrown at me. And I don't know where to place myself. So it's so important to figure out what works for you, but to be able to have those moments in which you anchor yourself, in which you anchor yourself in that space and you react to life and everything that comes your way from that space. And then you initiate things that you also would have not initiated without it. If any of the distinguished uh, people on this class would like to... uh, add and answer this person from Israel, how you make this visceral and not only intellectual in your life, I would love to hear, and I'm sure she or he would love to hear. I feel like one single act of bringing light into the world is so much more powerful than trying to make sense of the darkness. That's beautifully, beautifully said. It's also very important to be able to understand that some people who are suffering from serious anxiety and trauma They can't just hear a class and expect it to go away. I sometimes get emails from people, actually often, emails from people, they feel guilty because people tell them, if you would have a Muna, you wouldn't have anxiety. The reason you have anxiety is because you don't have a Muna. And I always tell them that these people who are telling this to you either don't know about anxiety or don't know about a Muna (laughs) or don't know about both. Yes, it's true that some people through their Muna can get rid of their anxiety and it's amazing. And they should. And it's very, very helpful and very, very effective. But sometimes a person is suffering from a very acute condition. Sometimes a person is really dealing with something very difficult. Just to tell them, you know, listen to this class and and have a moon and you'll get rid of it, is really not understanding and appreciating what this person is going through. This person may be dealing with a serious challenge and you have to open yourself up to them. Not because a moon can't help it. A moon could help it. But there may be so many blockages and so much resistance and so many issues they have to work with. So you have to know how to have compassion and help this person work it through, especially with people who are experts in this particular area. And the amuna that that is applicable then is the amuna knowing that in my anxiety, God is still with me. God is holding my hand and cuddling me to be able to make sure that I'm not defined by my anxiety, that I could look at the anxiety but realize that I am not it. I could contain it and it doesn't define me. So for each person, there's a different journey and we have to respect the fact that some people who have been through a lot of stuff or there a lot of stuff are coming out, you know, it's, it's, it, we shouldn't just dismiss it and say, oh, you know, listen to this class. Rabbi Waiwai, you listen to this other class, you know, and everything will be resolved because it's, it, it may be unconscious. It may be things that have been absorbed through unconscious methods and there's no way you're going to spit it out just through data and information. So we have to just also be aware of that.
somebody says that uh, somatic healing is very, very helpful for this and learning how to relegate yourself. These are two things that she found very helpful. Yeah, so somatic therapy is now very, uh, it's very popular and a lot of people really appreciate it. Um, uh, it really, it really tunes into the body and it recognizes the fact that the body knows everything. I heard one of the, the big teachers of somatic therapy today in California. I think she had a session with Rabbi Chase Taub a few weeks ago. And she's in California. So she said something fascinating. She said that, um, you know, it used to be in therapy, you come in and you have to figure out the source of your trauma. I'm not feeling well. I'm, I'm confused. I'm overwhelmed. I'm stressed. I'm anxious. And now let's figure out what happened. What happened to my son? What happened to my daughter? Can you help me figure out what happened at the age of four, six, 10, 15? Was there sexual molestation? Did somebody touch them inappropriately? Was there verbal abuse, emotional abuse? Was there neglect, etc.? Reggie Melrose, right? Melrose, Reggie Melrose. So, so, uh, uh, this, uh, Reggie Melrose was saying, today we know you don't have to do that. You actually don't have to talk about or even know the source of it, which is amazing. What you do have to do is talk to the body. It's all there in the body. The body experiences and holds on to every event and to every conversation and to every encounter. And it gets absorbed in the body. And we have to give the body permission, permission with a lot of compassion to be able to open itself up and let it go. That's amazing stuff. That's incredible stuff. And I see today generally there's more and more articles and research and books about the fact that the future of healing is going to be in the body. We always thought it's the mind, you know. <laughs> we'll analyze stuff. And, and analysis is very good. You know, cognitive behavioral therapy has been amazing for so many people. And other forms of, of, of analysis and therapy, so many different schools of thought. But as time is progressing, there seems to be a new trend where it's very much about the goof, that the body itself knows everything. And it's all stored in that body. So yes, it's important to learn and it's important to understand because if I don't understand and I don't have perspective, just working with the body I don't think is enough because those thoughts can drive you crazy. So you have to have the right perspective of what the where the trauma is, what it's doing to you, and how you could respond in different ways, and that you have choices, and that remember that the trauma is not you. So these are it's very important to have the wisdom, the education, to put it all in perspective and put it in context. But the real healing often has to happen very much inside my guf, inside my body. Now it does say in Chabad Hasidus that when Mashiach comes, this is incredible, the soul is going to get spiritual nourishment from the body. Today, we eat food because the body has to live, and the soul is connected to its divine source of oxygen. And on the contrary, the soul helps the body. It says when Mashiach comes, there's going to be a new awareness, such a profound consciousness in the world, that the body is going to feed the soul. (laughs) In other words, the godliness of the body is going to become revealed in such a powerful way that the soul is going to become a student of the body. It's an incredible idea. Now, I saw this as a child growing up. I heard it from the Lubavitcher Rebbe many times. He once said, listen to this, 
that it says in in in, in Chumash in Parshas in Parshas Vayera that Avram and Sarah had a debate about Yishmol. So God says to Avram, God says to Abraham, Whatever Sarah tells you, you should listen to her. So this is what the Rebbe said, that it says in Zohar, in Parshas Chayisara, and the Rajba writes this, that Avram represents the soul, and Sarah represents the guf, the body. The Gemara says in Babasra 17, that the Avais and the Imois, the patriarchs and the matriarchs, had a foretaste of Olam Haba in this world. They already lived in the consciousness of Geula. So the Rebbe said, that's why Hashem told Avram, whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her. Whatever your body tells you, your guf tells you, he's telling the Neshama, it's a metaphor. God is telling the soul, whatever your body tells you, you have to listen to your body. Because you're already in a state of Olam Haba where the soul gets its cues and its direction and its food and its nutrients from the energy of the body, which is a Mashiach state of consciousness. And that's why I find in, this the, the Lubavitcher Rebbe said a few decades ago. So I read it many, many years ago. I saw the talk and I'm like, okay, it sounds interesting. But today, it's really an incredible development in history that we're getting closer and closer to a point where we see that the deepest wisdom, the deepest spiritual wisdom is in the body, in the guf. That's why you have to treat your body with so much respect and sensitivity, because it really keeps the score. <laughs> it really keeps the score. What helped me was learning Chayvas Halavavas Shar Habitachayim. Duties of the Heart, Rabbeinu B'chayi Ibn Pekuda, 11th century, great book. Shar HaBitachin, The Portal of Trust, that's been very helpful. And in recent years, there have been many editions, because it's written in Arabic, translated in a difficult Hebrew. But in recent years, there have been quite a few translations in English. I know recently, I got, I think, three new editions. Uh, Rabbi Rubenstein, Rabbi Y.Y. Rubenstein, I have a, he sent me his edition, and I think Chayenu gave out a Shara B'tachin and somebody else. So that in Hebrew and English, it's a very powerful piece of work. But again, I'm going to say, it's a book. So it could be cerebral. But to make it visceral, takes work. Could you say her name again? Reggie Melrose, M-E-L-R-O-S-E. There are many therapists today who are doing somatic therapy and other forms of bodily therapy, including therapy with the muscles and therapy in other many other ways dealing with the body. People should look into this because one of these may be very helpful for you. There's also EMDR therapy. There is uh, energy coding therapy, energy healing coding therapy. These all focus a lot on the body and they are new methods being developed and I found them to be life-changing for me personally. Okay, beautiful stuff. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.